Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 26th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm producer Adam Isaac. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is brought to you by Christmas. Indre is off with her family, so here I am forced to introduce this week's show for you. In a minute, I'm going to run an interview with Adam Savage we did back in November, an interview we haven't actually uh, yet run on the show. Adam Savage is the co-host of Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel, the new season of which premieres very soon on January 10th and a self-described obsessive maker of things. He's a special effects designer, fabricator, actor, educator, and all-around top-notch guy. We recorded the conversation in his top-secret workshop slash cave in San Francisco, and I should mention that there's also video of it. So if you would like to see as well as hear the interview, you can go to youtube.com slash inquiringshow. We did this interview just after our live show with Adam, which we ran as episode number 58. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and they expand on a lot of things they talked about on stage, like the future of Mythbusters, the joys of being a maker, problems with Gamergate, and what exactly it's like to be a rock star science communicator. So with that, let's go to the interview. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Adam Thank Savage. You. Thank you. Thanks for letting us into your cave. Yeah, my sanctum. Um, I know it's a little bit overwhelming, but this is where I feel the calmest. No, it's totally awesome. So Mythbusters is going through a change. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see this as a denouement of the show? Or is this, do you hope that it goes another 10 years? Or do you see this as kind of like, you know, a, a period at the end of a long run? Um, given that... Uh... That's an interesting question. Given that it's television and in the entertainment business, the bottom could drop out at any moment for any reason. Uh, and I come from behind the camera, so I really understand that. I have tried over all of these 12 years not to hope for anything. Like, you know, enjoy and work hard at the best of it and plan for the worst of it. So yeah, I'm always surprised when they pick up Mythbusters for a new season and I'll keep making the show until they lock the doors. Um, I don't think it's the swan song of Mythbusters, and I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's the beginning of the end. It's just another way of making the show. And you know, when you do anything for a really long time, you try in every way to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. And this change up 
provided some interesting opportunities for altering the way we told stories. Mm -hmm. And that's just always an interesting challenge. Um, you know, the, our, the evolution of our ability to tell stories has been very fascinating over the years. In the beginning, we had no idea what making television was even about. Um, we didn't know, you know, what would... Sirens outside, sorry. <laughs> we didn't know how to structure stories, and so we would just shoot off the cuff, and then the editors would have to piece it together. And then as we got better at understanding those stories... Um, Careful watchers might notice that we were building, you know, after like three or four years, you saw less of us building because the stories were getting deeper. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely been the case over the last 12 years. Is the stories have gotten much more complex as our ability to parse the science and the engineering of what we're doing and talk about it and communicate oh. it. Wow. <laughs> um, and one of the key differences of Jamie and I producing all of the all of the footage for each show now is that we're putting a lot of that process back in. Mm -hmm. There's lots more of us discussing building stuff, screwing up, getting cranky. Mm -hmm. um, that real, I mean, that's the meat of this job, and we're putting it back in the shows. So that's one of the big differences, obviously, between reality television or documentary television and scripted shows. So do you go in now with each episode knowing what the story, where you want the story to go, or do you still kind of follow your nose like you might have done in the first few seasons? Both. We, like, we try and approach it like a real scientist would, right? Like we have assumptions about where things might go, and we have a plan based on those assumptions. Um, so somebody's angry outside. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you can hear it, but someone's having a bad day. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. We should keep going. This yeah, is yeah. great. Um, it's room tone. <laughs> so, so we write out a, a plan. You know, we outline every episode, and we sit down and we say, mm -hmm. "Okay, what is the, the the biggest thing we argue over is what's the question?" Because almost every myth can be phrased in a way that the question is a positive or a negative. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you'll bust it or confirm it and we don't we don't care which uh it's just about what's dramatically more interesting um if it's going to look super linear if we choose to do it one way we'll do it in the less linear way mm. but halfway through we'll frequently i mean more often than not conduct a test whose results are so different than what we expected or so much more elaborate that the story then changes its direction and that's the biggest difference between mythbusters and people who've attempted to capitalize on mythbusters success in our space, it's not reality television in that cameras are just following, following us doing what we do. <clears throat> we do second pieces to camera. We write our stuff. I mean, we don't write it, but everything comes from us. But it is discussed with our producers where this narrative is going. So it's, it's a sort of unscripted reality. I don't even know what, what you'd call it. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that um, most producers in this space really write out the whole episode, mm -hmm. and then they kind of film it. Right. We don't. We write out the whole episode, and then we film what actually happens, and we change directions if we have to. And that means that the narratives are genuinely honest. And that, mm. for us, feels really exciting. Because when we're doing swimming in syrup, and we discover that every assumption we had about viscosity is wrong at the end of day one, and then again at eight, day two, and again at day three, and then when we bring in an Olympic-level swimmer to answered the question and he turns out to be worse at adjusting to the new parameters we've settled than I am. And we tell him, we got to throw out your results. And he says, yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm too specialized. And you, the generalist, are actually a better test subject. That's fantastic. Like, yeah. we just love that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. I think I think you're exactly right that that's what makes the show so compelling. Um, and you know, so so let's say then that you've come to a part of your time in MythBusters where this is starting to you know it's it's, it's television is changing anyway. So it even is, if yeah. you are you know even if your show isn't necessarily going to last another ten years, television the way it is right now is not going to last another ten years. Um, so you started spending more time on Tested.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tested.com is more like a cornucopia of different things. You mentioned before that it's like things that you're interested in yeah. goes on Tested.com. Um, for a lot of people, that seems really scary because those of us who are trying to build a career in anything are told, look, you know, you need to do something well, you need to stick to it, you need to become an expert at that, and then, you know, you can do whatever. And in some ways, you've done that, right? You're an expert at making stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you put in those years before you even started Mythbusters. So, do you think that the success or the potential success of Tested.com comes from the fact that you've already built up this audience? Or do you think that anyone with as much uh, passion and interest can also create a, a, a website that's not, you know, where the direction is not so immediately obvious, yeah. um, but that passion can still lead to success? Well, I totally think the latter. I, and I think that the, the cost of entry for making interesting product in terms of content is so low now on the web where you can buy cameras for a thousand bucks a piece that shoot broadcast quality video. Mm-hmm. And as long as you've got something interesting and honest to say, people are probably going to show up and watch it. Um, Tested has been and is still a, an incubator for us to try mm-hmm. out all sorts of things and yeah to sort of see what will stick and where this where the media the medium ends up um, as far as being a generalist I mean <clears throat> as a freelance special effects artist I had to be an expert in or an expert I had to be a craftsperson mm-hmm. in a bunch of different skills mm-hmm. and the more skills I had the more employable I was but also, I couldn't just focus on special effects alone because there wasn't enough work. So I had to always be thinking about what's next. Also, in special effects, you were also probably really good at toy prototyping. And that can be very lucrative, especially around toy fair time, which is, uh, you know, companies get ready for toy fair and sometimes spend tens of thousands of dollars on prototypes of toys that they're making in China but don't have a finished one yet. Hmm. That's very lucrative work. Uh, there, might be, uh, there might be work doing medical prototyping. Uh, another lucrative mm. field. There might be work doing, actually, I know a former model maker from Industrial Light and Magic who makes a mint in LA doing high-end cakes for celebrities. It turns mm. out that precision that they learn while model making transferred beautifully to this other business. So for me, I've always had a freelancer's brain and there hasn't been a single season of Mythbusters where I'm not always still thinking, what's next? What's next? What's next? What might work? What what might I want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been... I've been inordinately lucky, and I really, really appreciate that. You know, Mythbusters, I got hired to do it. I'd never hosted a TV show before. I had some acting training and some communication skills, but I got to learn that job while doing that job, like most of the jobs that I've had. And I look forward, I expect that I'll probably end up miles from any assumption that I have. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, no, I, I, it's really gratifying for me to hear you say that, because that's one of the things that 
you know, I think a lot of us who want to make a living doing something that's non-traditional, either in the arts or even in science these days, it's really hard not to think, well, you know, what's going to be your day job? How are you going to make money? But this notion of trying to figure out what aspect of what you do is lucrative and then, you know, not think that that's a sellout thing, but rather just a way of getting you the time to do the stuff you really want to do is, is great. And it turns out that what we want to do, and I think you're similar in this, is tell stories. Mm -hmm. That's what humans do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the thing that I found most surprising about doing Mythbusters is that it turned me into a scientist mm -hmm. in my brain, mm -hmm. in that a scientist is only looking for a rigorous way to tell a story. They're yeah. dying to know mm -hmm. not only how it ends, but how it began. And they want to know all parts of that narrative. And when those fit together, they can be beautiful and elegant narratives. And communicating that to the outside world is the goal. And, you know, when Richard Feynman says, God, there's a beautiful bit when he's sitting in a chair. You can find this on YouTube. He's sitting in a chair and someone says, can you explain a magnet to me? And he says, uh, can I explain a magnet to you? Well, I can't really explain a magnet to you in the way that I understand it because I don't understand it in any terms that you could possibly understand without a master's degree in physics, if not a PhD. He says, I can talk to you about the weak and strong magnetic force and that the reason that a magnet works is the same reason my hand doesn't go through the arm of this chair, even though we're both 99.9% .9 space. He said, but I can't explain it further without getting into some very complex math, which means, he says, that I don't fully understand it. Mm -hmm. And that's such a wonderful insight and something that, you know, we've prided ourselves on to really try and figure out the way to explain things so that somebody who has no background in science could really understand it. And to that end, one of our, our, our favorite people is our director, Alice Dallow, for nine years. And Alice was a total Luddite when it came to science. And her thing as a director was, if I don't understand it, you're not done talking about it. Mm -hmm. So let's figure yeah. out a way. I've always thought that the scientific method really is a great structure for storytelling. I mean, it's laid out in there, right? Ask a question, do a bunch of stuff, go into different directions, and then find a conclusion. That's a story. And and we think, like, it's all frequently held up. And even Feynman talks about this, about art and science being mm -hmm. opposites of each other, which mm -hmm. nothing could be more mm -hmm. bullshit. Form a question is a deeply creative act. Mm -hmm. Especially when you realize, I mean, we came upon it running in the rain. Is it better to walk or run in the rain? Everyone understands that question. Mm -hmm. But then you really start to ask it, how far are you running? What's the average run? From what to what? Is the wind at your back? How hard is it raining? All of these bear directly. Also, we all agree that a certain amount of time spent in the rain will get you totally soaked. Mm -hmm. So the two lines of the graph cross at some point. Mm -hmm. So then it's pr practically arbitrary where on that graph you agree to examine the question. That's all really creative. And yeah. then form a hypothesis. You know, Robert Piercing says in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, also a deeply creative act. And the more hypotheses you invent, the more you can invent. Mm -hmm. They're self-generating. The better you get at thinking of other reasons this may be the case, the more start to appear until you're like, I, I got to hold on. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent that art and science are not only not opposites, but they're partners and completely intrinsic to each other. Yeah. I mean, I love Stuart Firesire and talks about really science is about ignorance. It's about what you don't know as opposed to what you do know. And I remember like, you know, 
trying to pitch a television show idea to a couple of producers down in Hollywood. And they always said, well, science is boring. There's no story there. And I was like, there's nothing but story there. And I, you know, just give me a chance. Let me, I mean, I the didn't... scientific method and the narrative arc are the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Each person, yep. a scene works because it's developed off its previous scene. Same thing with an experiment. Yeah. And you know, what's cool is that like when that experiment goes in a different direction, the story is better than you would have written it before you sat down to exactly. do the thing. So. Reality is smarter than we are. Anyway, that's awesome. <laughs> Yay, high five. Yes. <laughs> um, so we had a live show in San Francisco, yes. and there are a few questions from the audience that we didn't get a chance to ask. And uh, I pulled out a couple of them because I thought they were really interesting, and one of them just was really funny. Okay. Uh, so let, let's uh, humor us and, and um, help us answer these questions. So one of the questions is about education, something that you're passionate about, something that your show has really educated a lot of kids. Um, and the question is, and I think this is really pertains to the U.S., is a public versus private education. So on the one hand, um, coming from Canada, I'm a big proponent of public education, but ed public education in Canada is great. Right. Now that I have a kid in San Francisco, I'm scared about, you know, the, the potentially terrible public education. So um, what, do you, what advice can you give to people who, you know, <laughs> should you take out a massive loan to put your kids through private oh, school? Is that, that I worth can't, it? I, that, that I can't answer. I don't know. Everyone has to make the decision based on their own, on their own deal because everyone's different and every child is different. Mm -hmm. um, it is a real question. I'm a firm believer. Look, if we were a village of 100 people, we would band together and make sure that all of our children were educated. We would figure out that way. That's what we would do as a community because that would benefit the community. Mm -hmm. I view the same thing on a 300 million person scale in the United States. And I think it's our responsibility to educate our populace. I also think that college should be free mm -hmm. uh, or at least a few hundred dollars a year. And I think it's appalling how expensive that's gotten. Uh, my, my, my kid's mom and I uh, believed strongly in public schools, and we were lucky enough to get into a really great one here in San Francisco, Mira Loma, uh, or in early days, when it was just a brand new parent-teacher cooperative, and there was, you know, it was just sort of coming ascendant, and my kids spent six great years there, and we we're like, public school is great! And then they went to middle school, and it was like a prison movie. Mm -hmm. Middle school was a terrifying ordeal, and all of a sudden, I mean, and I've got a moral problem spending $40,000 on education every year until it was on every year until it was my kid. One of my kids has learning differences and really needed to be held close by his education. And we sought, we, we found a wonderful middle school here in San Francisco, which isn't that much by any stretch. It's called synergy here in the mission. Uh, and synergy saved my son. You know, they taught us better ways to parent. Me, my son's mom, and my wife, we all became better parents because of this wonderful school. Um, I, would, I would love to have been able to find a middle school that was public, but it was an emer I felt what I was dealing with was an emergency. And again, I'm inordinately lucky enough to be able to afford it, so I did. Uh, and the same thing with his high school. We, you know, we, he's now in a private, one of my sons is in a private high school, one's in a public high school. So I'm bridging all of the, the, the full gamut. Um, my son is in a public high school, uh, is a wonderful singer and performer and is in the Oakland School for the Arts. And, you know, he went and got himself into that school and that's great. If he needed a private school, I'd probably pay for it. But, it's a thorny issue. I feel like it's our responsibility as a culture to do that. Not as a, I like society is the word that's used, but I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. And I, I, I think 
we absolutely should be educating our kids to the best of our abilities all the way through college. Yeah, I totally agree. So speaking of family, there is Oh, a- wait. By the way, also, when when conservatives like to talk about those halcyon days when, you know, men were men and women knew their place and, you know, everything was great because everyone was middle class, they're talking about post-war United States. And I seriously think that one of the strongest contributors to our massively powerful post-war economy was the GI Bill, which funneled tens of thousands of American soldiers right into Ivy League universities for free. And then they went out and made their fortune and created the boomer generation. They call it the greatest generation. They came back from Europe and Japan and went to college. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that's not even part of our debate is appalling. What a difference now for (laughs) their experience. I know. Um, So speaking of family, uh, we're getting close to Thanksgiving. And uh, I've heard about what is probably the best Thanksgiving ever. uh, That was your your fault. Um, And whereas you had a turkey. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Tell us this story. I was 19, I think. And I had come home from New York City to see my folks for Thanksgiving. So this would be 1987. Yeah, 87, 88. And um, my mom had bought a giant turkey, like a 25-pound turkey. And it was in the fridge, and it was so big, it just made me laugh. I was like, you just you couldn't conceive of how large this thing was. So um, I was 19, and I was, you know, at 19, I was sleeping like every third day. Because I was in New York City, and it was amazing. And I just stayed up all night, and I made a turkey out of paper mache and then I hollowed out the inside after it had hardened, and I painted it, and I made an alien burst from its chest at the dinner table. <laughs> I still have... Wait, wait, wait. I do. I do. Um, this, this is the now $700 alien toy, which at that point I ripped off the head of and painted to look like a chest burster coming out of the turkey. So what was the reaction of your family? Uh, Did you they know, freak out? Yeah, they laughed. <laughs> You're used to that. Awesome. Um, okay, let's see. We got through those questions. Okay, so there was one question that uh, was written by someone named Rembrandt, um, probably a pseudonym. Uh, he and I share I, a birthday. Oh, uh, the actual Re- Rem- Rembrandt. The actual Rembrandt Van Ryn and I have the same birthday. Okay, but I wanted to read this one verbatim. Okay. Because uh, it's a good one. <laughs> hey, Adam, do you believe that there will be three to six days of darkness in December, like what NASA said on different social media? Three to six days of darkness in December. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what that means. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds it sounds one. vaguely biblical, <laughs> but I would I can't imagine NASA. I mean, in certain parts of the world, there will be days of darkness. <laughs> December twenty third is one of my favorite days of the year because that's when the days start to get longer. December uh, June twenty third is one of the saddest because I love really really long days. Yeah, I, yeah. I and now I have somewhere. I have a, a baby who's and we're going through our first end of daylight savings, which apparently is a disaster with a baby when you have oh. to now reset their time. And, right, and just, falling back. Fascinating. Yeah. I know. It used to be my favorite weekend, but now yes. I'm kind of dreading it because it uh, means I'm just going to have to get up an hour earlier. Kids, no, 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 no. Wait, are, do you, you, you? Well, the baby's going to think it's still right. 5 right. They're going to have really, their own schedule. Four I see. And right, right, so right. It's just going to be annoying. Nice. <laughs> They'll adjust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've got Tested coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Mythbusters coming up. 
Um, if neither of those things were around, what do you think? Would you go back to doing special effects or would you, what, what would you do? That's a really good question. Um, I might, I might be totally interested in doing special effects. Um, when I was, when I was a model maker, um, I was very keen on a track that might eventually carry me to being a special effects director. Mm -hmm. um, that is a science and a field that I love. Again, it's storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be something I'd explore. Or it might be really cheeky for me to think that I could step back into that after 12 years of absence. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being able to make stuff, I, I, I think through worst case scenarios a lot. So I think I could work as a mechanic somewhere, you know, and live above a garage in, in a small town where rent is cheap and I'd be totally happy. Um, I was just as happy making 30 grand a year as I am now. I just have a few more toys. Mm -hmm. um, I think about teaching a lot. Uh, and it's absolutely something I want to spend a significant portion of my life doing. Uh, when when I have the time to do it is to teach teach things from practical model making to advanced problem solving Which is something I feel like I've gotten practically a degree in on Mythbusters mm -hmm. um, How to parse something you have no practical experience of and tell a full reasonable story about inside of 10 days mm -hmm. um, That that's been an incredible education and it's made You know, I showed up on Mythbusters after 15 years as an effects guy and I you know, I felt like I had a little bit of a swagger, like I knew how to do shit. Uh, and what I've learned on Mythbusters, I look at myself back in 2002, I'm like, you baby, you didn't have any idea what you could do. You know, no con functional understanding of what was possible. And that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it might not be that, although I have become a, a communicator and a storyteller, um, it might not be that I do that in a public space, mm -hmm. and that's fine. I'm I'm content to do that as a, as a teacher, as a writer. Um, I have a model making book in me. I have forty pages mm -hmm. of outline for it. I would love it to become the textbook for all industrial design uh, uh, programs around the country because there are no comprehensive volumes that talk about the skills that I learned in the movie business, mm -hmm. which are all time based. You know, you read a model making manual for architecture and they're like, spray it with a clear coat and let it dry for a week. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to film it this afternoon. And I have those techniques. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I've always got irons in a bunch of different fires mm -hmm. just to make sure that I can handle whatever happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite memories of, uh, of time that I spent with my dad when I was a kid <clears throat> was he, he was a big aficionado of making model airplanes. And, uh, you know, I was just a regular little girl, but my dad was like, gave me a, you know, an old car or an airplane and was like, paint this with all these different paints. And those are my favorite memories of him. And like, I still don't understand why it's fun to sort of sit down and make something with someone when half the time you're not having a conversation, you're not really interacting. And yet there's something mm. that's really bonding about that. Yeah. What is that? That's a really good question. Um, Wow, I'm I'm not sure I have a ready or pithy answer for that because oh, you're absolutely right. It is it's a deeply satisfying exercise. I mean, you know, I made this model the other day with a friend of mine, and for me, he he built it and then I painted it, and I did a quick and dirty paint job. This is about forty minutes. Um, but what I love about painting models is painting is storytelling. I'm telling a story about how this, what, what environments this moves through. Um, when I paint a panel a different color, 
that panel's a different color for a reason, and I have that reason in my head. Mm. Um, I love that storytelling process, and I feel like it's not dissimilar from sitting down and enjoying a movie together. Mm. It's like we're infusing ourselves with a story. We're we're putting something together, but then there's also that that human desire to tinker, mm-hmm. which is like. It's these that have made us what we are. It's these, you know, 50s, 52 bones that have done it. And using them must be a deep release of important chemicals, which you know about and I don't, that, that make us feel like we're fulfilling a, 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 our purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, just as much as raising kids, I feel like tinkering for me feels like I'm fulfilling a deeply biological need. Yeah, there's no question that our hands have evolved to be so dexterous for a reason, and using them, yeah, maybe does really satisfy some some of these needs. Um, I have one last question for you, yeah. which is a touchy subject, so this is why I've waited until the end. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, and that is, you know, we talked a little bit in a previous uh, conversation about Gamergate and mm-hmm. the treatment of women in uh, tech fields in particular, in gaming, you know, in, in specifically. Um, and this vitriol that some um, men primarily uh, feel against women coming into this industry. And as an outsider, I'm not a gamer. You know, I'm a woman no. in science, but I don't understand the anger. Um, and I was hoping that you could maybe give me some insight as to why is there so much rage against yeah. women in these fields? I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I wish I understood it better because I see it and I have friends that suffer from it. And yeah, you know, I worked with Carrie Byron for 11 years and I've watched the evolution of the terrible shit Carrie's had to deal with as a public figure and a woman and a science communicator. Um, I can't help but feel... And I'm psychoanalyzing people I haven't met. So full caveat. But uh, I, I have to imagine that our culture is constantly promoting impossible ideals. Ideals, um, ideals of ownership, ideals of success, and ideals of body type. And, you know, women have suffered mightily from Hollywood's ideas of what women should look, of Hollywood and general media uh, ideas of what women should look like. You know, even where we've got old, new, old dudes on Fox telling all the ho- female hosts of a show he's on that they could all lose 10 pounds. Like, and I mean, they should have stomped him at that point. Uh, but I can't help but feel like it's part and parcel of a, of a, a deeply sort of nihilistic view of consumer culture. And I'm not decrying consumer culture. I know that it's like a cargo cult, but I deeply love the brands that I love, like Apple and, you know, designers whose clothes I wear. I'm deeply addicted to it. At the same time as I recognize it promotes some terrible ideas about what's possible and what could make you happy. Um, And I think, I mean, really at its base, all anyone wants is to be happy and to be fulfilled. And it's genuinely sad that there's a group out there that feels so unfulfilled that they feel the drive to push their lack of fulfillment outwards, right? I want to deny things to you and you and you because I feel denied. That's, that's terrible. Again, though, I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's my liberal politics, but I, I, I point the finger at a, at a cultural at a culture that looks at, you know, 
I think I read a poll a few years ago that that a really significant proportion of Americans think that they'll get rich by winning the lottery or suing somebody. Oh, great! Right, and you're like, oh my gosh, those that's those that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> those are terrible ideals. Those are terrible things to shoot for. My yeah. goodness, um, and. I also say this recognizing that I'm saying it from the position of someone who is very comfortable and I have a wonderful life and I'm very grateful for it. And, you know, my lack of suffering is something, look, I suffer like everybody else suffers. I recognize that because I've been on television for 11 years, I suffer less and I don't know any way to counteract that. Uh, so again, I'm psychoanalyzing people I've never met and I'm trying to answer like the biggest question I've had in, in months. And it is a really important question for us to ask societally, societally. It's a really important question for everyone to be asking. Um, because at the moment you try to hurt other people, whether by, whether with words or physically, the moment you're trying to hurt other people, there's something deeply wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, I, I really believe that this is a minority of individuals, that they are very vocal and very loud, but they are small in number. And that the vast majority of people that I have encountered in my own work as a scientist are like you. Right. Kind, generous, intelligent. So, you know, um, one of the things we're taught culturally also is that power is really important to have. And people like having power. I read years ago something, an analysis of corporate culture that said, all you need to know about corporate culture is that is that the only power is the power to say yes. That's the only real power. Hmm. It all, all boils down to that. And almost nobody has that power. Hmm. Everybody has the power to say no. And the problem is, in corporate culture, is that because that's the only power most people have, they use it as often hmm. as they can. And I'm not saying that's a brush you can paint all, of, all corporate culture with, but it is an interesting way to examine that feeling of power. Because I agree with you. I think it's a small group, but I think it's a group that has discovered its power, however long it might last, and are drunk on it. Yeah. Because when you're a kid and you realize you can make the adults around you laugh, <gasps> you have a power. Mm -hmm. When you realize that you can talk to someone you're interested in and not be idiotic and actually get them interested in you, that's a power. Mm -hmm. When you read a book and you realize that you have a different analysis of it than the, than the critic who's writing about it, and you feel like yours is valid, that's also a power. And these are all really good things to develop. Um, we want to be able to change the world around us. But for Christ's sake, for the better. So we just need to get all those guys into an improv class. Where say yes. <laughs> yes, with a female teacher. Perfect. Well, Adam Savage, thanks for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I want to wish you a happy holidays. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or whatever to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by me in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm producer Adam Isaac.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 